I'm Dr. Jill Wiener. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. Welcome to the Conscious Anti-Racism Podcast. I'm Dr. Jill Weiner, and I am so pleased to have Arnie Joseph with me. He's the president of Chroma Health Solutions, and I met him when we were on a panel together talking about what we can do to dismantle racism in healthcare. And Arnie has a wonderful background story of, of how he got into the work he does, and um, I can't wait to get into it. So let's just go ahead and get started. Arnie, thank you so much for joining me. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Jill. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about uh, you you told me a little bit about your your childhood and 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 maybe a, a sort of a, a gestalt version for your for the audience here of what what lit it lit your fire of of how to get people to understand each other because that's really what you do is you help people communicate and I think your background is so interesting in that way. Yes, uh, yes, ma'am. So I think it really it started in my youth. I, I'm from the projects in the Bronx and then moved up to upstate New York uh, in the late 60s. And uh, I saw um, my father was very much into healthcare uh, because he had extremely high blood pressure. So being African-American in a majority, I mean, an overwhelmingly majority non-African-American community, the few African-American families that were there uh, were very close. They were all scientists of some form that worked for IBM up in upstate New York. So we used to uh, gather together uh, regularly and we would have dinner at each other's homes, but they always skipped, after a while they skipped dinner at our houses because they didn't like what we ate <laughs> because <laughs> we didn't eat Southern style food because my father A is West Indian, my mother is not, but my father is. And B, because his blood pressure was extremely high there wasn't, there were, you know, we couldn't have any salt. We didn't have any fried foods. Um, you know, the macro, you know, everything was done differently than the, the quote, typical Southern style, unquote. So um, I saw, but I did see um, how they, the pushback on the way we ate. And I, I remember that from a very young age, they kept telling us we didn't eat black people food. And, and hearing that from African-Americans is very insulting. Yeah. But um, we kept hearing that. My father, would, being a chemist, would just lay things out. He said, okay, let's say we have kale. He said, we have okra. We have collards. We have lima beans. We have corn. He said, how is this not? You know, we have fish. We just bake it. We have chicken. We just don't fry it. We have pork. We just don't fry it. So, um, and the reason that it resonated with me, Jill, was... Um, by, see, I was up there in the late 60s, by the mid-1990s, most of these brilliant scientists had already passed away. And my father was in his upper 60s, um, and they, his cohorts had passed away from heart disease. And, um, and, and I remember thinking at that time, there's, there's got to be a way to help folks understand uh, you know, cultural beliefs and behaviors towards health in, in order to, um, to impart a paradigm shift. 
but in in upstate New York, there were there were virtually no African American physicians. So the majority of physicians were of other ethnicities. So they just did not understand um, the cultural strength of of that Sunday dinner, mm. and of of what it you know what it in, what it entailed. And so they looked at these people as not adherent and lazy and what have you, <clears throat> instead of understanding. Look, I, I know this is a big part of your culture. However, you've got to understand that kind of food and it, it was eaten, you know, a long time ago uh, on Sundays only. And there was a heck of a lot of physical activity going on around that. So if you eat that way every day, there's going to be some issues. Um, but what rather what they heard was you're not adherent. You're not listening to me. I give up. I'm not spending, you know, why should I waste my time? that kind of thing. So that's really what, that's what started it. And then what closed the loop, Jill, was looking at the way the healthcare and pharmaceutical industries speak to the patients in their patient, their medication adherence programs. Mm -hmm. When I was up there, I saw that the materials and resources and later the websites all featured one small demographic. And then when I moved to Brooklyn in the mid nineties, I saw early 90s, actually, I saw that the same materials were, were being given to the patients there. And physicians used to complain loudly uh, to me being a pharmaceutical rep. And I would go back to headquarters saying, you've got to understand, you can't feature, you, you know, the, these cultures are very different. And if you're looking at people with cardiovascular diseases and conditions, which you know, at the time my, my company sold a tremendous amount of, of medications for those, you've got to understand how to talk to those folks and how to get them to change their behaviors. And this is certainly not it. And ask my physicians if you want to, and they would just come back with, oh, we spoke to 12 doctors and they agreed this is good. So just, you know, it is what it is. So that's when I decided, all right, fine. I've been in this business for almost 20 years. I'm going to do it myself. And so I put together a virtual team and that's what we've been doing, trying to figure out how to help the healthcare industry understand that there needs to be a different approach when you're dealing with certain communities and ethnicities and socioeconomic demographics. There's a, there's a need, you've got to understand their beliefs and behaviors towards health. You've got to understand their health literacy levels. You've got to understand how to, res how to design resources and materials that resonate with them. The fast food industry does the best job in the world, literally in the world. The US fast food industry has the best way of communicating with these ethnicities. And then right after that are sporting goods, sporting good manufacturers and then the military and then liquor and then cars, they all get it. But the healthcare industry still targets one small demographic, um, you know, one that needs to be served, but that's it. There's, just, there's a one size fits all approach and that really does not work. Yeah. Well, it's interesting for, for me as a, as a white person, the concept of white gaze for anyone listening, G-A-Z-E, which is the sense that like everything, everything in the world is kind of built for white people. So white people don't notice it because it's built for them. And like, there's like the regular grocery store and then there's the ethnic aisle and then there's the ethnic care care, but there's like, everything is white until proven otherwise kind of. And, exactly. and that's how you're, you're saying the, the pharmacolot, like pharmaceutical advertisement, everything features white people and it's right. not making a connection, but Correct. until you see it, once you start to notice it, it's everywhere. And it, it, mm -hmm. it like, 
actually physically hurts me to see now and I do whatever mm -hmm. I can to, to try to tinge it and the stuff that I have control over. But it's, it's, it's shocking how ridiculous and unapologetic it is. And I think that your point is so salient and is so important that no one's going to hear it if it's not directed to them, if they don't identify right. with, if they're not the target audience, then why would they have the trust to listen? I, I feel like. Exactly. And it's, and it's endemic. It's, it's like the skeleton of healthcare industry. Mm -hmm. um, it's not something that can be, it's like trying to um, you know, address a deep seated issue by going after the symptoms. Like uh, that's, that's, you're going to be chasing those symptoms forever and they're going to be getting worse and worse and worse because, you know, that disease is not being addressed. So if it's, you know, raging type two diabetes and you're chasing after just the diabetic retinopathies, like you, you know, you're going to have to go get that foot mm -hmm. and then, you know, you're going to have, the kidneys are going to go. So why aren't we addressing the, you know, why are we just talking about that one as much as it needs to be addressed, why aren't we getting down to the basics? So one of the, I remember, and I, I won't name the medical school, but there was a prominent school of, medic, of medicine below the Mason-Dixon line. I'll just say that. And there was, there was a uh, push to include cultural competency training in the school, in, in the school. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was a very hard push, and I'll never forget what I read. <laughs> I read, I read. I'm gonna make sure I don't say the name. The attendings and the the um, administration uh, have decided that that we don't need it. <laughs> and I just couldn't stop laughing. I thought it was so funny. They're like, yeah. So all of us who are not of any, you know, we, this is primarily Caucasian physicians. We've decided we don't need it. We don't need cultural competency training. Therefore, there will be none here. So it just, it was hurtful, especially this is probably a U.S. News and World Report top 10 medical school. So it's hurtful to see that, but mm -hmm. it's understandable. So when I, you know, I do, I've been in the pharmaceutical industry or consulting to the pharmaceutical industry since 1985. I see the same thing. I see the same level of um, lack of awareness mm -hmm. when I pitch or push, and it doesn't matter if it, if it can be diseases that very strongly over-index with African-Americans and Latinos. And I mean, at least 70% of the patients are, are Black and Latino, and they will say to your face, no one's ever asked for it. You know, we, we're doing just fine, thank you. Um, this program won awards, that's the big one. This program won awards, we don't need to change. Or they will show me, a, which is one of the worst things you can do, a Spanish, a poorly translated, which is the great majority, a poorly translated Spanish language version of an English language website mm -hmm. uh, with the exact same thing, the exact same in imagery, the exact same layout, the exact same words, just badly translated. And, um, and say, see, and look, it won an award. So there's no reason for us to change. And then you go into these communities with either, um, you know, I, I do a lot of ethnographic research, which is a step I just wish so many individuals, so many entities would take, but 
it's, it's, um, it's an uphill battle. So you go into the South Bronx, you go into Third Ward, Houston, Fifth Ward, Houston, you go into um, South Central LA, you know, focusing on Englewood or Watts or, or East LA or Boyle Heights, or you go into West Baltimore or Southeast DC, and you talk to people there and you show them materials that the pharma industry calls award-winning and you just sit back and, and listen. And you, it's, it's, it is almost 100% of the time, especially when I go to Latino communities and show them the quote award-winning Latino or Spanish language stuff, they always say the same. It's either derision, laughter, or anger. Yeah. And that's which not is a problem, problem right? <laughs> which is, a, which is a problem. Yeah. <laughs> Which is which is the problem? So all those yeah. things. Yeah, it's 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 heartbreaking to me, but I, I I believe this is my calling. So even though it's extremely difficult to get those in power, Jill, to understand the need to and how to, I still think of what I've seen, and I've seen things that will make a grown man. I remember going to Southeast DC. I was consulting for a wound care company. I went to South C Southeast DC to a hospital I won't name. And it's not the hospital's fault, but I still won't name it. And I remember there was a wound care presentation there. And the client that I was working for was scheduled to speak. And I'll never forget, I had, I pulled up to, or I was dropped off. I was dropped off. Yeah, I was dropped off in front of the hospital. And I remember when I was a representative in um, uh, Borough Park. Yeah, it was, it was, it was Borough Park in Brooklyn. And uh, I can name this hospital, Maimonides Hospital, which is right in the middle of Borough Park, which is one of the, the, the you know, ground zero for a very, a very high population of Hasidic and Orthodox. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, very large families, right? So the maternity ward, um, just lar you know, a long line of, of uh, women with their babies in wheelchairs being wheeled out and being picked up by their by their families. So it was a, just, a, just something I, you didn't see at other hospitals in Brooklyn at that time. Just such a sheer number of, mm -hmm. of, um, okay, of women. This looked the same way, only they were African-Americans with lower limb surgeries. Wow. It was, they were coming out of the door in wheelchairs and I stopped and it just reminded me like, this looks like Maimonides, except the people are a different ethnicity and there are you know, men and women but there are no babies here. These are all lower limb issues. And I just thought, oh, well, it must be wound care day or something like that. So I asked the security guard, <laughs> I said, is, is today what, you know, like what's today? And he, he couldn't understand what I was asking for. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. And so I said, um, what did I say? Is, is there a special clinic or something? Cause you know, he was pretty busy, you know, direct, you know, keeping, he said, no, it's always like this. I, and I pointed, I said, you mean exactly like this? He says, it's always like this. And when I came in and talked to the wound care nurses, they shrugged. They said the same thing. It's always like this. And I said, look, I've been in this industry for 32 years. I've never seen this in my life. I've never seen it in my life. And they said, this is how it is down here in Southeast DC. So it breaks my heart that you know, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a verse that my people suffer from a lack of knowledge. I mean, there are these, these complications are avoidable, but it's why isn't the healthcare industry, why doesn't the healthcare industry understand that there's an urgent need 
uh, to get the word out that you this is the need to and how to avoid this and why isn't there a big healthcare you know community-based grassroots campaign why there are so many people down there fighting they just need the support of pharma and healthcare industry and they're just not getting it because I see the materials I know what I'm talking about I work with these companies I see the diabetes education materials I see um, you know, I hear the stories from the patients where they'll say, I remember the dialysis unit in Brooklyn, which was majority African-American men. And that was, you know, when I just moved to Brooklyn and I found that fascinating because A, I, I just like, I, I didn't know that it, that um, the majority of sufferers of end-stage renal disease were male, at least they were the, the place I went. And I'll never forget asking the question and it broke my heart. And I, I asked them how their physicians, what their physicians had told them about how to avoid it or what caused it. And very, Jill, very few people said that they had been told that they were in danger. Very few. Yeah. Most, most of them said, before this happened, I had no idea I had end-state renal disease. And, and I just looked like, you, you can't be serious. They're like, I didn't know. I didn't even know. I didn't know I was headed down this way. And then when I was in, and when I was in uh, doing a program in Third Ward, Fifth Ward, and Denver Harbor and Sunnyside in Houston a few years ago, there was a nurse, I won't say the school, but she was on staff at a nursing, maybe I shouldn't even say, well, there are a lot of nursing schools in Harris County. So one of them. And her father had, had, um, dialysis was 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 undergoing dialysis and she said to me something that i will never forget she said jill these words yeah we're trying to figure out how they're making us have this that's what she said can you expand on that a little bit she said and that's what i said <laughs> i said uh come again she said we're trying to figure out what they're giving us to cause this mm. And I said, this meaning, and she said, kidney failure. She said, look at all the dialysis centers that have grown, go, that are going up here. We know they're doing something. We just can't figure it out. And I did not take that very well. This is an African-American nurse. So I handled it very poorly, but I was angry. I'll just put it that way. Mm -hmm. I, was just, I was just angry. And she was angry at me. She said, well, you're from the North and you don't know what you're talking about. We're down here and we know what we're talking about. They're doing something because it's not a coincidence that a, uh, in a neighborhood, a dialysis center will open up within three or four years, it'll be full. She said, it's not a coincidence. You can't tell me they're not giving us something. And that's what a nurse on staff at a nursing school in that county said to me. It sounds like the prison industrial complex. Like it sounds like we're making money off of out of off of black and brown bodies having you know being locked up or having medical problems and 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 not doing anything to to stop it. And it, it sounds so horrible, but it's I've I've learned enough and, and and heard enough now that I there's very little that I wouldn't believe at this point. And that's scary that our society has. I don't want to just say gotten to this point because it's been like this. It's been, it's, it's been like this. It's not, I wouldn't say the equivalent is the prison industrial um, 
issue, but it's it, it can be close. And and yeah. for this, this is what I mean. This is what I mean. I have been threatened. I have been yelled at by people high up in medical institutions and somebody in the federal health. I, I, I ran the communications subcommittee for the U.S. Department of Health, Regional Health Equity, uh, Region 2, which is the New York area and around there for a few years. So I was in close proximity to others in the healthcare um, arena in the U.S. Department of Health. I'll just say that. <laughs> and I've been spoken to very, very harshly. Um, because, By white people, I'm presuming. I'm sorry? By white people in leadership. Uh, no, not always. No. Okay. No, not always. Or, or non-black non people? I'm just trying to get a sense of... of uh, there was a good mix. Okay. Was a good mix. Okay. What do you so think I, was, was, what do you think was setting them off that would make them yell? I had their, my hand in their pocket. Mm. So the way one person said in in a in a top five U.S. News and World Report Cancer Center, when I did a program, my program was a community-based program, and we were going to do a we did a nutrition education program. And the way we did it was I called it the Costco approach, and the approach was. You go into Costco to buy batteries, but you smell something cooking on the other side. You walk over there. Next thing you know, you go over there and you buy it. Mm -hmm. Very good strategy. Or the, the chicken's always in the back smelling good. It's a very good strategy. You know, you know let me walk all the way over there. Oh, what this? So the idea we had when we built this program was um, let's do a grocery store tour in the hood. And let's do this where we're going to have healthy different stations will have healthy versions of fast food or just regular old you know we'll have healthy the, the food that's being featured in that area let's just bring it out bring it off the aisles and cook it or prepare it or you know reconstitute or what have you and then when people come walking by you do the costco you want to try this want to try this so that's what we did and we had a lot of volunteers we had um goodness i think there were 12 or 13 entities a school of nursing, school of public health, a big university, uh, a food bank, a VA nutrition. You know, we had all these entities who a retail pharmacy chain, and they all volunteered people to come and to hang out in these in these grocery stores, um, big full service grocery stores. Hang out there for two days, and connect people to local nutrition related programs. So because you realize you can't, you know, you don't give a Weight Watchers has shown how powerful it is. Well, it's not a present. I always tell everybody, it's not one talk. It's not a presentation and everybody, oh my gosh, I'm going to go lose 65 pounds. Right now, I just heard a great talk. Yeah. You got to change people's behaviors. So one of the things we were talking about, the reason that the retail pharmacy chain got involved and one of the nursing schools was we were talking about the power of antioxidants. So you know where those antioxidants are in most stores right? They're around the edges. That's where the, you know, the first thing you walk into most grocery stores, they usually put you right by the vegetables and fruit. Mm -hmm. By design. Well, most people hustle right through those areas and get to the other stuff. So when, when there was, we one of the little stations, we were talking about the importance of phytochemicals and antioxidants, which is how most people don't talk. 
but just their role in delaying cancer, preventing cancer, preventing inflammation, improving heart disease, et cetera. So <laughs> this guy who's from one of the top, top, top five uh, cancers, he, he set up an appointment with me. So I thought he wanted to participate. <laughs> so I got in there and he, I'm very excited. And he asked me what, first of all, I'm not, this is not from, I, I live in central Jersey. So it was not close to central Jersey. So right there, it's not Philly and it's not New York. That's the only hint you're getting. <laughs> so he, he's like, you know, what's your background? What's this? What's that? What's the other? And he said, um, don't you come down here. What, what do you think you're doing? He said, look around you. What do you think built all this? And he said, I'll tell you what it is. It's chemotherapy, it's surgery, and it's, chemo, it's radiation, it's chemo, and it's surgery. So don't you come here talking about going into those communities and talking that mess. That's what he said to me. Wow. So what, it, what I realized, and I found the same thing at wound care when we, I was doing wound care programs, I found same thing. It's like it was said to me this way. Look, let me tell you, you know, let me give you reality something. This hospital is the biggest employer in this, you know, in a 20 mile radius. You want to know what keeps this hospital going? These types of surgeries and procedures. So don't be hurt. Don't be upset. Don't be shy. If you get a little bit of pushback when you come in here talking about preventing these procedures and they, that was the end of the conversation. All I said was message received. So I don't see it so much as I see it as a financial thing. I don't, I'm not sure it's, I, I think racism in, is involved, Jill, because they don't seem to care that the people are black and brown and the incredible, the incredible negative impact on black and brown communities when its citizens are being, you know, sick and they can't work and you know, all that. So there is that. There's definitely that lack of concern for people of the of those two ethnicities specifically. But the way I see it is, and my father used to say this, he said, well, racism, and he's like, look, of course there is a lot, but it doesn't pay. He said, you've got to attach something to it to really make it. So when it's financial, there are, we, we're, as, as I said, I, the reason I, I said to you earlier, I got the very strong impression because of what was said to me that by doing disease prevention in black and brown communities, I was sticking my hand in people's pockets and they did not like that. And they had no problems getting right into my face and telling me that. Yeah. So, I mean, it, I think it's interesting. So it, it's, I've, uh, as, as many people have more and more now read the book, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. And mm -hmm. he talks about, I believe it's capitalism and racism as like conjoined twins. Um, and you can't have one without the other. Uh, and the fact that this whole country, the whole financial system and, 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 and maybe the North didn't have slaves after a certain point, but everything they used to produce was produced by slaves and built by slaves. So it was all still very in, in, interconnected. Mm -hmm. I think that the money and the racism are absolutely, I mean, you bring up such a good point. It's money, but it's money at the expense of people that are deemed expendable and it's exactly. precisely it's, it's absolutely because it, i i've had a lot of conversations with people about 
the healthcare system and, and the more I learn, the more I'm starting to see the healthcare system as kind of a microcosm of systemic racism in general. And mm -hmm. sometimes I get pushback on that, but sometimes people are like, no, it's not a microcosm. Like it, it, it is the worst system in our society. And as a, as a physician, I mean, I didn't go into medicine to like oppress people. I didn't go into medicine to in, get paid by other people, but, but at some point the system breaks you. I mean, I never, I never believed that when I left, but I was participating in a system, but I didn't even know that the system was doing that. I didn't, I would never have known that a, a doctor would actively say out loud, what do you think built all of this is chemotherapy. That, I mean, that's not even insidious. That's outright just. Well, that's not horrible. unconscious bias. That's not yeah. deep-seated. That's, that's, and that's, it was right up front. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, and I'm not, and it almost sounds conspiracy theory, but it's not like I, I have heard from enough people. And I think there's so many people in medicine who are altruistic and they think they're going into something to help people mm -hmm. without realizing that the system that they're perpetuating often perpetuates harm. And, and so I, I, I mean, it's, it's almost like too much to, to, it's, it's such a big topic. I almost feel like we could do an entirely separate interview on this or a series of interviews on this because this is just um and and then there are people who are trying to help but what are they trying to help with like it's the medicines and the pills and the because those are the tools that we're given right. and that's what we're taught is the is the answer right and it's evidence-based and it's sanctioned by the medical training and so right. yeah so yeah. Any other thoughts on that? I mean, it's such a big topic because I do want to get into a little bit on, on how we do establish trust and, and communicate, but, but this, our, our conversation has taken a dark turn, but it's an important one. And I feel like yeah, you have, I you have to talk a little bit. You, you absolutely have to talk about it because it is, it is, it is there. And when you, when you hear and when you realize that in many I mean, you know that you know hospitals have been the number of hospitals have been dwindling precipitously over the past twenty years. So you you look at um, some communities where the hospitals are, and they take care of a large number of, or they take care of a, a good percentage of indigent patients. They can't take care mm -hmm. of a lot because they'll they won't make any money, and then they'll you know they'll go out of business. But they'll take they take care of a, a significant percentage they tend to be one of the bigger employers in, in, a, in a community. So it's, it, you start to see like the, this is the racial, racial disparities are the, end, are the blood that keeps the engine going. So in other words, if you did not have all these wounds and all that trauma, violence trauma, you didn't have all these wounds, if you didn't have these disease complications, if you didn't have these readmissions every you know, 30 day readmissions, if you didn't have that, what would the hospital look like? And the answer would be a heck of a lot smaller. And then they, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this, but then this area would be in trouble because we're the number one employer. All right. So, so do you think they actually believe that or, or do you think they're using that as an excuse to justify the continued I, I don't know. I just oppression. know that I've heard it. I've heard or both, it. both I've maybe. It. I've heard it, so I won't judge. I, I just know what I. Right. 
what I was told. And then I, I'll leave you with this one before we talk about how to maybe address this. Uh, again, when I was doing wound care, uh, I was talking, I was also talking to a laboratory that can, uh, it's a DNA, it's a DNA, it's a molecular next generation uh, PCR, molecular diagnosis of, of um, pathogens. And so um, when you look at some of these chronic wounds, many of them are caused by uh, pathogens in a biofilm. Mm -hmm. So they're in a biofilm and the challenge is that the way that most like 99% of people diagnose Jill, um, infections is through wound cultures. And so the problem with that is that biofilms have a protective layer. So you can't really, you don't really get a good picture of what's causing that infection. You're just getting a picture of the active bacteria that are on the outside trying yeah. to establish. Okay. You're, you're the, that's the planktonic, right? Those are the, those are the, those are the, the, you know, the, the, the bugs that come out of that biofilm and they're like, they're, they're on mission to get another biofilm going. So underneath the biofilm are bacteria that are sessile. They're not really growing, but they don't need to because they are protected and they are taking their time kicking butt whatever is underneath. So the problem is when you do a culture, all you, you're not going, you're not, if you, even if you do a deep culture, you're not, get those bugs underneath that biofilm are not actively producing because they don't need to. So they're not going to go into a peachy dish and grow. Well, grow is whatever happens to be kicked out to start a new biofilm. Okay. So working with this company and they were talking about biofilms and chronic wounds and how they're causing such an issue because wounds never get better. Doctors get frustrated and they say, you know what? You're going to lose this foot anyway. Let's just go. Let's just go get it. Let's just take it. And you know what happens, Jill, when you when someone loses one foot, you know what's coming next. A year later, the whole lower limb mm -hmm. and the leg, and then you know what happens. So, I put this guy on an advisory board whose mother happens to be a congressman, congresswoman, in um, a certain area, and. He comes out of this, he's on the advisory panel because he is a, a CEO of a nursing home chain, African-American guy. So he comes out of this advisory panel on fire. Why? Because he said, I just got a call over the weekend that the, my father, the doctor wants to take off his foot. And he has had this small wound for about three months and they can't figure out what's causing it. And they give them a lot of different antibiotics and nothing's working. So he said, I'm going to ask them if they've ever considered molecular diagnostics. All right. So he goes in there, he talks to the doctor. The doctor says, your father's foot's coming off because we just can't get a handle on this infection. And he said, why don't you do PCR testing? And the guy's like, who do you think you're talking to? I'm the physician and I'm telling you mm -hmm. that you and he said, who do you think you're talking to? My mother is Congresswoman so-and-so. You, you're going to do this. I'm demanding that you do this. So you know what he said? He said, he said, 
kid, he said, so you can't tell me what pathogens are causing my father's infection because you've been trying to mess with this thing for three months and whatever you give him is not working. So that means you don't know what pathogens are causing that infection. Therefore, I'm not letting you take his foot. This is what he told me the doctor said. He said, I tell you what, let us take his foot and then we'll tell you. No. That's what he said. He called me cursing his head off. Oh my God. And I said to him, I won't use his name. I said, you're, you're, you're not a regular guy. Like, you own a couple of nursing homes. You were, you were in the pharmaceutical industry for 20 years. Your mother's a congresswoman. What do you think they're doing to regular folks everywhere in this country? He said, they're taking that foot. I said, they're taking that foot. And when you look at the data, if you put in the phrase, racial disparities in lower limb surgery, mm-hmm. what do you think you're going to see, Jill? Nothing. Black and brown. Oh, oh yeah, or, or just not acknowledging. They're, they're, they're black and brown. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're, they're black and brown. I mean, it's the overwhelming majority are black and brown. So it's like, hmm, I just know what I heard from my friend who I put on the ad board and not, I mean, just right away. I mean, he's on the way home from the ad board and they're like, yeah, your father, that, that toe, it was a toe, that infected toe. We just can't get a hold on it. So what we're going to do is we're going to take the whole foot. And he said, rather than aggressively treat or this, this is, yep. And I'm the doctor and who are you to tell me? And you know, who do you think you're talking to? And, and that's so, Again, racism, a little bit to do with it. Economics, a big part. And they just weren't used to, because so many Blacks and Latinos will say, well, you're the expert. And if this yeah. is what you think, this is what, this is what, you know, we do. So they, so it's, again, I know certain communities where that would never fly. There would be a second, then a third you know, we're going we're gonna to check this first. We're going to go to a different doctor. We're going to look up to this and we're going to look to the number one vascular mm-hmm. surgeon in the area. Then we're going to go to the number one endocrinologist and we're going to talk to this and we're going to do this. And all well, they said is, yeah, well, well yeah, we'll, we'll take his foot off and then we'll tell you what bacteria causes the infection. Just like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is, it's economic, but it's, it's, it's so much more racist than any of us. Yes. Than any of us realize. So, okay, so, I, I want to right now just go cry in a corner about the healthcare system, but what, what can we do? So, cause I mean, we want to establish rapport, but we want to make sure that we're establishing rapport so that the black and brown bodies and humans are listening to good advice. Mm-hmm. We want to establish the trust that's, that's, that's earned, but also so that we're giving good information that is heard and received and used to prevent things rather than, um, rather than using that communication in a, in a sinister way, which it might be if, right. so, so what, what are your thoughts on, on establishing communication? Cause I know you've gone into communities and you've brought all sorts of different elements into the community and, yes. and established grassroots campaigns to get yes. to get that so talk a little bit about that that work that you do and yes. and and uh if there's anything what what we can do to improve trust and and communication so um the, there are many things but what i've seen work in 
and I'll name some of these communities, Central Brooklyn, Harlem, old Harlem, not new Harlem, <laughs> uh, old Harlem, uh, South Bronx, um, West Baltimore, Southeast DC, um, Mem West Memphis, Third Ward, Fifth Ward. So I named all those actually before. So those are very different, but there are a lot of similarities. And what I found is that by going in, I don't really bring resources because a lot of resources are there. What I do is I provide, I act as Luxembourg, mm -hmm. so unaffiliated. So quickly people say, you should be do this as part of such and such hospital system or such and such health plan. Like, nope, good. Not everybody loves y'all. So mm -hmm. I can't do that. <laughs> I can't do that. Y'all could be part of it. You could definitely be a big part of it. And we'll have meetings there sometimes, but no, it's not yours unless you're sponsoring it, which you're not. Um, so what we do is the first step is to try to identify as an outsider, again, as an outsider, try to identify the, t the entities that are in, this, in these communities that are doing the right thing, that have the trust, that have the, that have the you know, documented success, that provide the services that constantly are doing some type of education. It doesn't have to be health, but some type of you know, job training, housing, um, child care, um, uh, something. And what we found is that there are all types of social organizations, community organizations, local chapters of advocacy groups. And advocacy groups don't always, you know, people automatically think, you know, go to the big advocacy groups. I'm like, no, I've gone into these communities and they don't have a good reputation because they're not really, they can't say that they're doing something. So what we do is we, we every, everybody, Jill, everybody's talking about the same people. They just call them different by different names. So everybody's trying to engage patients, but employers don't call them that. And black fraternities and sororities, they don't call their constituents that. And the city government doesn't call them that. So, you know, everybody's trying, employers don't call them that. So everybody's trying to get the same people to push towards to prevention or management in between doctor visits, but they're all trying to do it themselves. Mm -hmm. And we can see the results of that. So my premise is you go in and let's get everybody to row in the same direction. Let's figure how we can all work together to reach the people we're all trying to reach. And what happens is, it's, it's like, Jill, it's literally like a symphony. You have all of these pieces that come together and they make beautiful music. Whereas just a year before, all you heard was one section the whole time. You know, it was nice, but it wasn't as lovely as when you got everybody else involved. Mm -hmm. So really what happens is when you get these entities to work together, then you have the health, then healthcare gets involved. Um, pharma gets involved and so forth and then you you do ethnographic research through these entities so in other words instead of i don't remember where you are let's say you're in atlanta i'm sorry atlanta okay that's right so let's say i don't know atlanta that well so you notice i didn't bring that one up but let's say if you're in in uh in, in new orleans Instead of going into those communities that are now one of the biggest COVID hotspots in the, in the country, uh, they will say, come to Commander's Palace to a market research program. Well, who are you going to get? <laughs> you know, who are you going to get? Mm -hmm. So some market research company is going to get some well-engaged patient that knows, you know, loves Commander's Palace. 
and they're very comfortable talking to a pharma company and talking to a market research company and you're going to get insights from someone who you're paying and feeding very well as opposed to going into a church or a community center in Treme or one of those other communities and having a physician that they trust and a pastor that they trust lead the research and you're sitting there asking questions but the people that they trust are right there the people that they trust actually got you into that building and the people that they trust invited them you what you hear is almost usually 180 degrees different than what than what pharma health it's completely different it's completely different and you're finding real insights of the people you're trying to reach not the hyper engaged which still again they still need to learn but everybody always focuses on that one group. Like, what about those people who don't do anything until they can't feel their toes? What about those people who don't do anything until they can't see? Where is your strategy for them? How are you talking to them? And who's talking to them? Where's the, who's your messenger? So the best way that I've found is to partner with these entities that have the trust of the folks, just regular folks, not the hyper-engaged. And when you partner with them and they believe that you are out for their constituents, their congregations, their, their sorors, their bras, their fellow employees, their you know, people around the block, when they believe that you're, you are absolutely about making them or helping those folks to get and stay healthy, they will help you do it. They'll help break down the trust because you're now working with them and they're bringing you into the community. So that, that's the way in general. If you want to talk specifically, like how do you help a physician become culturally competent? Uh, I mean, that's like asking someone that eats nothing but you know, somebody that used to do the Atkins diet and eats nothing but fatty meat mm-hmm. and gets them to be a vegan. Uh, that's a, that's a, that's a $10 million question. It's not, it's, it's, there needs to be, first of all, there has to be a need to change of these providers and, and, you know, physicians are the most educated folks we have in this country, the brightest folks. They were always at the top of the class in high school and college and the medical school is extremely hard and residency is hellish and then fellowship, what have you. So you're trying to tell those people that they need to improve. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's not an easy task at all. It's not, so, it's not. Yeah. And, then, and then how do you keep the, once you build the trust, how do you make sure people it's not taken advantage of and that they're not like sinister using, you know, using the, the, the people in the, the, the pastors and the community people not using those people to um, miseducate people or, or, or to not be doing the work of the preventative work. Ah. That, that part also was a little bit scary. Who's there, who's, who is there safeguarding the knowledge that then gets passed on once you gather the, once you gain the trust. So, so if, if what I found is, is the premise is, we go in if, and everyone will make it abundantly clear, everyone meaning all these community and faith-based and civic entities, if it's for us, it should be by us. Yeah. So they'll tell you, and I have, I remember, I, I wish I could tell this company's name because they made me so angry. I remember community leaders. And when I say community leaders, people always think that means that they're street folks. These are attorneys and school principals, school board members. These are high-ranking people in the police. And so 
literally yelling at the pharma company, literally yelling. We've been telling you the same thing for three months and this is the best you can do. This is a miss. Who in the world is in charge of this? They, they got, so they will, once you develop a partnership, you keep that partnership, they're going to make you straight. Yeah. And if, if you can't be straight, you're out. Yeah. They will literally kick you out. Like you're no longer welcome here and we're going to spread the word. Yeah. Never to trust you. So that's how, if you're getting those folks and you're developing that relationship, they'll keep you honest or they will kick you out. Yeah. And I guess the people in there doing thus far, at least the people doing the work to actually build real relationships, maybe they have a more altruistic or, or an actual desire to help. That's not that's right. that. And, and it's like, you want the healthcare systems to figure it out, but you kind of don't because if they come in there with their, <laughs> with their bad actors and their bad intentions, then it almost might, there's yeah. a balance there. Is that, is that, am I? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's difficult. And that's why you go to a lot of, a lot of larger urban markets and they have such a bad anti health insurance company, yeah. anti pharma, because they've all been burned. They all have stories. Mm -hmm. They've all been burned. You know, the, we, you do, they come in here, they overpromise, underdeliver, they get underdeliver, they get their photos taken, they brag about, we see their stuff in the New York Times, what have you, and then they pull out never to, never to come again. So that's something that my team and I always have to fight against. But thankfully, because we've done programs across the country, we have a lot of folks that will vouch for us. And we started with that. Like, look, yeah. we've, yeah. We got two years to make something happen, but the bottom line is if this vendor, if this client pulls out in two years, what we will have done was we will have set you up to succeed without them because what we're doing is getting them to work together, entities that usually don't work together to work together. Mm -hmm. And so why do you need an outside? You know, if you have a school of nursing and there's a large church that does health fairs or they have a health ministry or there's a community group that does health fairs or they have this program where they've got all these folks doing healthy cooking. It's like, why don't we get this advocacy group and this nursing school to lead the cooking classes? The, the students need to be trained and the nutrition group, they, that's all they do. So why are they doing it by themselves? Why the nursing group, you know? And so yeah. what we've done is we've connected them so that in one place, there was a HBCU um, school of nursing and there was a clinical research organization as part of the group that we built. And the clinical research organization was so thrilled to have nursing students from the school come to help them reach Black and Latinos that they wanted to uh, recruit for clinical trials, that the school of nursing said, hey, why don't you open up a little office on our campus? That way, you know, you'll have all this access to black and, and Latino nursing students who go out into the community and that way you can easily recruit. And in return, what they didn't say is, and in return, we get to tell people we have a clinical trial department and no HBCU has one of those. This was, this was years ago. Mm -hmm. So it's, you can get a lot of things in life, Jill, if you give out enough others what they want. You can give them, get a lot of things that you want if you give them. So everybody wants to be healthy. They just can't or don't know how so if you help, if you come in and you help folks to understand how to do it, they're the ones who can help drive change because they can talk to their providers and say, when you say this, let me tell you what that means to me. Yeah. Let me tell you 
what that means. When you told me I needed to lose weight, I'm thinking of one woman, you told me I needed to lose weight. And the doctor said, I do. And she said, on the way over here, I had several men tell me how good I looked. But you told me I needed to lose weight. You keep showing me pictures of you and your family. Look at your wife. Your wife, that's not a healthy look. And his wife looked like an 800 meter runner. She, mm-hmm. not, you know, she just was not curvy. I'll put it that way. So the, what the woman was saying is, I'm not, look at me. I never looked like your wife and I'll never look like it. And I don't want to. <laughs> so when you're telling me I need yeah. to lose weight and you're showing me this and you're showing me that, what, I, what I'm hearing from you is you have no idea who I am, what I'm all about or what, what looks good to me and my people. You have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. Therefore, that I'm not my standard. Yeah. I'm not listening to you because you don't know what you're talking about. That's a problem, Jill. That's a big problem. And I, th- I think the other thing it's important to mess- mention, it's, it's not that black and brown people don't know this stuff. It's they are kept from knowing this stuff. It's not, it's not you know, and I, I know that's not what you meant when you said it, but I want to make sure it's clear to the people listening that it's not like black and brown people don't have the capacity to know about their own health care, but they are systemically kept from knowledge and access um, and, and educational resources and all the things that would allow them to take a more active part in, in their health. I think it's always important right. to, to reinforce that right. um, because a lot of people don't understand that. And, and, and yes. someone like you might take that for granted that, that yes, of course, that's what's underlying it, but, mm-hmm. but, but not everyone does. Um, wow. Well, Arnie, this, this has been really eye-opening and, and wonderful. We are out of time for, for this interview, but um, thank you so much for taking the time to, to chat with me and, and to share with, with my listeners um, what, what's going on here and, and some really great positive ways to encourage community building and, and, and trust in, in a way that, that is to, to the benefit of these communities and, and requires long-term commitment and, and this getting out of this individualistic mentality. I think it's, it's very inspiring. I'm so grateful that you do the work you do. I don't know if you're hearing, there's a crazy thunderstorm in the background where I, where I, I am right now, but um, anyway, so as that's going on, um, thank you so much for your time today. Any last thoughts uh, before we finish? Oh, thank you for what you're doing. And this is what you're, what you're trying to do is, is honorable, but it's, and it's, it's mandatory. Mm. It, it, it's, it's mandatory. So it's mandatory that we do a paradigm shift. Yeah. Um, and any paradigm shift that I'm aware of, and I'll, I, I, I'm a child of the late, late 50s, very late 50s, uh, any paradigm shift is, is going to take some effort. But that's a law of physics, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to keep going the way they've been going until they're met with an equal or opposite reaction. Yeah. So um, what you're doing is necessary, but it's going to take some work. But we've done so many other paradigm shifts in the history of this country. There's no reason we can't do this one. Well, thank you again for all the work that you do and for taking time out of your very busy day to talk with me. And uh, I look forward to continuing the conversation in the future. And I and and me as well. And next time, hopefully, we'll do this on video, and I'll be able to do it on video. Wonderful, wonderful. All right, thank you. Thank you.